Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and around the world on our route Sheva. Your hosts, Michael Fragan and Phil Goldfeder. Phil is away on assignment, having ushered in a new president of Yeshiva University this past Sunday, Rabbi Dr. Ari Berman. Congratulations to him and to the entire YU family. And uh, first and foremost, as we talk about politics, I want to also bring it back home, continuation of last week, just praising the efforts of the Jewish community overall in the response at this point, not just to Harvey, but also to Hurricane Irma that hit Florida, that battered Florida, although um, fortunately for many in our community did not batter the east coast of Florida as it was predicted to, but yet in South Florida where there's a huge concentration of the Jewish community was not spared entirely, and many people did evacuate uh, to Orlando, to Jacksonville, which ended up being hit hard, and both of those ended up being hit hard by the hurricane, and to Atlanta, Georgia. I uh, have heard, um, and my uh, brother-in-law and sister live in the uh, Beth Jacob community in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, There were more than a 1,000 Floridians there, and in fact, uh, we learned this week that uh, part, actually, of the Nachum Siegel family, uh, Ellie Hagler had a baby in Atlanta as a Florida refugee. And it's amazing we say refugees here in the United States, but uh, in fact, that's kind of what it was. Uh, Ellie Hagler um, had a baby, a uh, son of uh, Richie Hagler and Sherry Hagler of Halb fame. And congratulations to them. Uh, they had that in Atlanta. Shalom Zucker is going to be tomorrow night in Atlanta. Um, it's really amazing that we as a community can come together and take care of one another when there is a time of crisis, that there are people willing to step in, um, especially the people who go in case of emergencies, they being Hatzalah, Chesed Shalemes, Zaka, Amudim, other organizations that were organizing and prepared, actually, uh, to send dozens and dozens of volunteers and material and equipment to South Florida in the case of need and you know the cleanup will be significant we don't even know really the extent of the damage in miami hollywood boca uh and those communities as of yet but uh we know that the extent of the damage for many in texas and houston is still severe and let's not forget about them as well it's been a very busy week in politics there is just well I'm going to just start from the top, and uh, we did have primary day here in New York, and we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, if you didn't notice that there were primaries going on, you're in the majority of most people. Um, most people did not vote, and uh, though, well, we're going to get to that a little bit later. We can talk about that, uh, but first and foremost, there has been a paradigm shift, uh, possibly a, a, a huge shift in the way politics is going on in this administration and in Washington. And what I'm talking about is that President Trump has found newfound besties, Chuck and Nancy, being Chuck Schumer, Charles Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader of New York, as well as Nancy Pelosi, the uh, Minority Leader of the House of Representatives, the de- both Democrats, uh, one from New York and one from San Francisco. And... Um, he has essentially cut a deal uh, with them on the debt ceiling funding, the government's funding hurricane relief uh, to the shock, I think, of many Republicans. Now, this in particular, this little piece, um, for 
in particular is bad politics from my perspective. It's because it sets up the Republicans for another showdown over the debt ceiling. Now, there's a couple things here. Uh, you know, the debt ceiling, okay, this is a symptom of government dysfunction, right? Number one is it's very clear that we borrow too much. It's very clear there's deficit spending. It's uncontrolled. And if it's so people want to put a debt ceiling on it, conservatives don't want to spend. They want to cap the amount that's being spent. And so therefore, you have to vote to lift the debt ceiling. Now, that you know makes sense if you can't, like a tax cap here in New York, like you can't raise taxes above a certain level and the government should live within its means like everybody else out there. But the idea that politically somehow the United States is going to default on its debt, which is the the hammer, I guess, or the penalty for not lifting the debt ceiling that somehow the government won't have enough money to function, and then that will become then the fo- political football. It was kind of this idea, well, we're going to make it so painful, so therefore everybody's going to have to come to a deal. Well, actually, what has happened is it's so painful that we are essentially not coming to a deal. We're just kicking it can down the road continually. So the fact that the president is right when he's calling for a removal of this debt ceiling because it doesn't, in fact, make sense to me to have this artificial thing to debate about either we're going to control spending or we're not going to control spending. This debt ceiling idea is not helping, but the mechanism by which we're doing it by cutting this deal with Democrats, kicking it three months down the road to force us to have another potential showdown three months from now, what sense does that make exactly? They can't agree on any issues, meaning in Congress. They can't get anything done of meaning in Congress. And I think the president is realizing that, and the president has come to this realization that he can now try and govern from the center, which makes a lot of sense. And a lot of us have been talking about that. We've been talking about that for quite a few months here on the show, that if you just peel off and you're willing to work with Democrats— and you're working to work with many Republicans, as we saw, that this debt ceiling deal did work because many Republicans voted for it, all the Democrats voted for it, because there are a lot of gov- Demo- Republicans who want to govern as well, and you can't be held hostage by the extreme wing of your party. The problem is that at the same time that he's cutting this deal, and potentially we've heard last night and this morning, there's back and forth whether he met had dinner with Chuck and Nancy last night, um, at the White House, and they said that he cut a deal on DACA, which is the Immigration Act, whether people who are undocumented, who are come to this country as children and grow up in this country as children uh, and grow up their whole lives, whether they would be deported, they have protections, and Obama extended protections to them, and Trump had Jeff Sessions go on TV and say he's rescinding it in six months, but he might revisit it because Congress has to act. Of course, Congress is not going to act. I think we all know that because they haven't been able to get there, but the fact is that on the many of these issues, the Republican Party is being held hostage by the Freedom Caucus or by the extremes. I think the Democrats, in some cases, are being held hostage by their extremes. Um, there were those out there who were critical of the of uh, Schumer and Pelosi for siding with the president, but the the whole idea here of taking the center and taking those who will be able to work across the aisle and pitting them against the extremes. That is a good idea. The rub becomes, and we are going to probably see it soon, the rub becomes here when you have your former strategist, and I'm talking about Steve Bannon, 
goes on national TV and gives an interview in 60 Minutes. And if you haven't seen this interview, it's, it's remarkable from my perspective, not just what he said, but just the contempt he shows in his face for the establishment. And look, a lot of people have contempt for the establishment. I, people want change, and people want things to change, and we all see the entrenched interests and everything. We know. But his historical view of how you almost, it's a revolutionary view. It's, it's the idea that, you know, we built this country, I don't even know who we is, but clearly it doesn't include immigrants, and we have to take it back, and we, we're on behalf of the working man. You know, this is, I mean, Steve Bannon, Look, I, I guy has an impressive resume, naval officer, Goldman Sachs, Harvard, but at the same time, he's part of, he's been part of the establishment for many years. He decided all of a sudden that he wants to go ahead and destroy the establishment. And that seems to be all he's about is trying to dethrone the Republicans in Congress. The problem, and I, you have this disconnect right now because Bannon is out there supporting primary challenges. From, from pretty extreme elements in the Republican Party against sitting senators who the president needs their votes on all these issues, on tax reform, on debt ceiling, on keeping the government running. He needs people like Dean Heller who are conservative, for like Jeff Flake, who are conservative. Their only flaw seems to be that they're insufficiently loyal. It's That's, that's odd because that's not really, you know, when you get elected to Congress, it, the test is not, are you loyal to your president? That's something in North Korea. That's something I think now in Venezuela. That's not something we think about here in the United States as to how it's supposed to be. But Bannon is out there doing that and and basically saying to Republicans, watch out, I'm going to attack you if you're not sufficiently conservative enough. But the president also wants to pull Republicans to the left. And Bannon says he's speaking on behalf of the president, or at least he's there to defend the president. His his nice money line there is, people should know there's no free shot on goal. I, I like that line. Good line. Uh, it's true. You should always know there's no free shot on goal. You should always know that there's going to be a consequence for something that you do. It could be a good consequence. It could be a bad consequence. No such thing as a free shot. But you can't have a president who is out there now supported by Democrats or making deals with Democrats when you're looking to attack on behalf of the president Republicans for being insufficiently conservative and they might go ahead and do that. And the other thing that Bannon's missing, or maybe he's not missing because he knows it intimately, is that the White House itself right now, absent Steve Bannon, is basically, as far as I can tell, in the upper echelons of the White House, kind of devoid of Republicans. I mean, who are you looking at? I mean, General Kelly is not a political guy. He's a military guy. McMaster is not a political guy. He's a military guy. So we don't really know their political affiliations. But Gary Cohn, Democrat. Steve Mnuchin, a Democrat. Jared Kushner, a Democrat. Ivanka Trump, a Democrat. So you have Steve Miller, who's a senior policy advisor. I mean, we don't know really what Hope Hicks is. She's now promoted to communications advisor. She had been working for a Democratic PR firm in New York. It's kind of unclear as to how you can attack others when you 
are running a White House that is essentially Democrat. That was kind of the absurdity when Steve Mnuchin and goes to Capitol Hill to implore Republicans to vote for this debt ceiling deal that they passed. And conservatives, I think 90 Republicans in the House voted against it. 17 in the Senate voted against it. And Mnuchin is like, well, you know, do it. You got You have to do it for the good of the party. Well, which party? I mean, I look, I'm not to attack Steve Mnuchin. He's there as the Treasury Secretary. He's a, he's a technocrat. This is not necessarily, but you can't. It's hard to go ahead and say to somebody that you should be conservative or you should or this is a good conservative deal when you yourself are not that, you know, you are a liberal New York Democrat, you know, with that history uh, or a Hollywood Democrat. You know, he he definitely made his living, uh, he, you know, both in Hollywood, in the movie industry, which doesn't endear you to a lot of rank and file Republicans out there. It's always not always not just the message. It's also the messenger. And maybe you send instead, you send Mike Pence, who has good cred on that front. There are just a lot of puzzling things that they do politically, which I can't really get my arms around and understand why they do. We also had a report this week, or it's actually just today in Politico, that we know that Mnuchin and his wife have had some minor league PR fumbles, particularly around her... Dropping the designer names of all her clothing when she went to, to see the eclipse and getting into a little brouhaha. But apparently, she had they had a taxpayer funded jaunt to Kentucky to see the eclipse. And Mnuchin apparently asked for a government plane to take him on his honeymoon, and he recently got married. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a little bit upsetting. But what I'm saying is. Politically here, it just, you see a strangeness. I'm not, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I think it's, even as a conservative, as like to still think of myself as a conservative, that it doesn't bother me that the president is dealing with Democrats. I think he should. He's the president of the country, and we should have some bipartisanship. We should talk, and we should take all the best ideas from both sides and try and craft legislation. And sometimes the sausage is ugly, but... You know, it still sometimes can can taste good. But at the same time, you have to also be cognizant of the politics. And the the way they are operating politically is just puzzling at best. And a lot of Republicans are thinking this bargain that they made with the president, who we they were very nervous about his credentials. Well, now they have their right to be nervous because he is headed in a very, very leftward direction or seemingly leftward direction. You can't really nail down Donald Trump on what he actually believes. That's part of his political charm that you really actually don't know exactly what he maybe he has core principles. Maybe he doesn't seems that the one core principle seems to be the wall. He continues to talk about the wall, that the wall is happening. Tweeted this morning, the wall is going to happen. It's being built as we speak. Uh, funding has to be for the wall. The wall has to be there. At least he's sticking to that. Um, the other things were kind of complicated. He didn't know they were going to be so complicated, but now he knows that they're pretty complicated. So that's, you know, that's really where things stand on that front. And it's a little bit, well, it's got to be a little bit disconcerting, particularly if you're headed into the 2018 midterm elections as a Republican and wondering whether the president is going to be attacking you 
or he has your back. And we are seeing a lot of retirements now from Republicans in the House. It takes 24 seats to flip the House. And allowing that to happen is a big, or making that happen, is a big problem for this administration. So the question becomes for Republicans is, how do you deal with this reality? Or even for Democrats, how do you deal with this reality? Democrats have not adjusted well to Trump either. They are continually attacking him on all kinds of issues that it seems that the American people just don't care about. And they have really yet to put forward a version of how they would govern or America. I mean, Bernie Sanders did it this week by offering single-payer health care for all. I don't know that that's what the American people want. Um, there's certainly a element that do want. You know, it, it's it's strange when you have this situation, whether it's Charlottesville and all the mistakes that the president has made, but there are still a core group of 35% that are with him on every issue. And then you have people in the middle who really don't know how to look at it. And you also have just the perception of how to deal with the president from members of Congress who are not used to, who are used to being cautious, who are used to being studied, who are used to being, to weighing the consequences of everything, to deal with a president who really doesn't deal with consequences, who just doesn't seem to care about, you know, can go out and say just about everything he wants or anything he does and gets away with it and has seemed to get away with it. We haven't yet seen if there are going to be consequences of that because, you know, we haven't had those midterm elections yet and we get closer, that might be a thing. But, you know, if the president, in fact, and there seems to be this disconnect as to whether he did promise to make a deal on DACA with uh, Pelosi and Schumer, he didn't make a deal with them, as I said, very unclear, but a lot of Democrats clearly walked out of the meeting last night, or sorry, Chuck and Nancy walked out of the meeting last night and thought that that's what happened. Now, if you want to look, and we should also discuss this week, uh, Hillary Clinton unveils her new book, and uh, I clearly haven't read it. I'm not going to be, but this is the secondhand reports of it. Way too long for me to think about why she's really not to blame for her own campaign. But one thing that does, and a lot of Democrats, I think, and Republicans just want her to go away. Um, I can't say that enough. I've said that so many times. It's just the problem with Hillary is, in fact, Hillary. And it's not that she's a woman. It's not that, It's just that she's Hillary. I just, I am sick of the Clintons. I've been sick of the Clintons for a long time, and a lot of people are sick of the Clintons. And, but she wants to talk about how all these externalities and all these other things are contributed to her loss and why she really... Now, she says she is responsible. At the same time, she's basically blaming Jim Comey for the fact that, you know, she ended up losing. And, you know, and the president actually went out there and said that, you know, she was a bad campaign, bad candidate, and that's why she lost. Um, You know, we could do a lot of... We could do a lot of understanding a lot of splitting hairs about the 2016 election it is a it's just a it's an electoral anomaly in so many ways uh if they're gonna be take a long time i think we're gonna have to understand the trump presidency in totality in a couple years in order to even understand the election but 
I think there's no question overall that Clinton made a number of mistakes. She didn't take Bernie Sanders seriously enough. The party did a poor job in anointing her and pushing everybody else out and not having any real discussion. And they should have gotten very nervous when they saw the success of Sanders and the dislike for Clinton on the left. But just from so many out there. And uh, undecided just broke Trump's way over and over. Independence broke Trump's way. And I think that's the key here. You know, the upper Midwest was slipping from Democrats for quite a few years. And they really didn't, they really didn't look at it. But let's, let's move beyond that. Let's move beyond, um, you know, the one thing I think it's worth talking about for two seconds is, is Jim Comey back in the news again. Hillary Clinton obviously talking about Comey. But at the same time, Steve Bannon staying in his interview that firing Comey could go down as the biggest political mistake of the modern era. Now, from somebody or from a camp that doesn't like to attribute any mistakes to the president, and from many people out there um, that I hear from who don't think that the president can do anything wrong, this is a pretty big one because... It's not just, you know, and Bannon's reasoning is, of course, that there would have been uh, no special prosecutor had Comey not been fired. And that's probably true when you look at it. The one thing now that's interesting and that's, you know, the drumbeat has been for a couple days is that Sarah Huckabee Sanders, the White House press secretary, continues to field questions on this on Comey. And she's pushing over and over for a Department of Justice investigation about Comey, about leaking, and about what he has said or what he has divulged or leaking to the press, etc., and that he should be investigated. And the whole idea that there is this, (laughs) the whole idea about the fact that there is this direction now once again that the white house hasn't learned its lesson that they should have not meddled in justice department affairs they should not you know the kind of the way the arpaio uh pardon was done is is you know you have to let the justice system run its course and the interference political interference in the justice system i think is is bad for the republic and you know directing essentially directing the doj to go ahead and investigate your political enemies that's, that's, that's problematic, and doing that from the White House podium is probably even stupider. Like, why are you standing there? If you want the Justice Department to investigate Jim Comey, do you have to stand at the White House podium and tell them to do that? Maybe you should, instead of proclaiming it loudly from the treetops, you should wink, nod, whisper. Don't email. But it almost guarantees that any investigation of Jim Comey will be looked at as a political witch hunt, which, of course, kind of cheapens it. And But, you know, they're, they're still not understanding the level of power on that. And that in and of itself is, is an interesting thing we learned this week from Bannon is that he has looked at that and said, you know, they... The, they do make mistakes. I mean, I think, imagine in, in his mind that firing him was probably a mistake as well, although he looks at it as an opportunity to go ahead and lash out at his enemies. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, and let's, but let's also remember here, you know, backing primary opponents to Republicans or to Republican leadership 
and those who are particularly popular, it wasn't like the president didn't try that during 2016. If you recall, there was a lot of perception that President Trump was backing a primary challenger to Paul Ryan, to the speaker, last year. And that guy got, I think, 16% of the vote. Paul Ryan got 84%. So a lot of times these primary challenges actually don't work. What they do serve to do, in many cases, they probably will serve to do in a place like Nevada, which is even Arizona, which is a which is a swing state. Remember Nevada, where Dean Heller is running and where the, the Trump is supporting a primary challenger, or at least Bannon is supporting a primary challenger, to Dean Heller, it's a swing state where Hillary won. And you're looking at potential to move the Republican way to the right, and then you're looking at a potential loss of a Republican seat in a general election going up against incumbents. The same thing in Arizona, which is becoming increasingly a swing state. So why are you going to do that? You want to lose seats? Do you, 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 you're complaining that you can't get to 51 in health care. You're complaining that you can't get a majority to get stuff done in the House. And if you go ahead and lose 24 seats, and I think there's like a dozen or maybe you know, 10 House GOP retirements at this point, I mean, a lot of people are going to head for the exits. A lot of people who are in districts that Hillary Clinton won, where they know that the president is not going to save them, and you're going to the right on that, it doesn't make much sense. Okay, we're going to leave that aside for a while. Now we have some marquee races that was primary day here in New York York State. Um, We do have some key battlegrounds. Nassau County going to be Jack Martin's former state senator against Laura Curran, a county legislator. That's going to be an interesting race. Rob Astorino, county executive incumbent. Uh, in Westchester County, going to be taking on State Senator George Latimer. And of course, in New York City, Bill de Blasio going to be taking on Nicole Maliotakis, the Republican, as well as an independent bid from Bo Deedle. Bo Deedle, a uh, colorful figure, uh, certainly. There is. Now, there might be two interesting points in this race, and it does look like Bill de Blasio is going to cruise to re-election. Um, it, it's the very unfortunate, you know, New York is one of the few big cities that has partisan elections. And, you know, I've, I've discussed this in the past, and I think it's, it's incredibly detrimental to the electorate that, uh, the, in fact, that people don't show up. But, you know, of course, you have a very anemic turnout. I think 14% of Democrats came out. So essentially, 14% of Democrats are going to elect, in most races, there's no competitive uh, general election. And it doesn't look right now that there's going. it's going to be all that competitive, although I like Nicole Malitakis a lot. I've, I worked with her. I think she's a very talented politician. But she's from Staten Island. It's the smallest borough. Doesn't have a huge base. She has nothing to lose. She's going to throw it all out there. But we might get to the point where thinking, can she be Bo Deedle? I mean, Bo Deedle, we'll see. I mean, he's a guy. He doesn't care what he says. He's going to throw everything out there. At both of them, will Bo Deedle start attacking Maliotakis? Well, Maliotakis attack Bo Deedle just to see who is going to come in there in first place. But it does look like the mayor is going to be uh, reelected as of now. But a lot can change. I mean, de Blasio does seem to fumble quite a bit and doesn't seem to understand his own weaknesses. But clearly those weaknesses were not on display during the Democratic primary. Of course, the campaign finance system gave Bill de Blasio, I think, I mean, your taxpayer money, I'm not a New York State taxpayer, uh, $3 million to run a race where he didn't even really have to campaign, went on vacation towards the end. That I mean, public financing of elections, I think, which is like this big good government thing is the absolute, I mean, it's the dumbest thing. In the, I mean, to, it doesn't help. You see clearly in New York City, there aren't competitive races. Yeah, there are some, 
but there aren't generally um, you get a lot of people getting money. You're funding anti-Semites when you have this uh, Lopez Pierre on the Upper West Side. He's getting money. Uh, you have Hiram Montserrat, who is a convicted felon, who only running because he's getting, uh, you know, who just served time, came out of jail and wanted to be in the city council again uh, or be in public office again. So it's a really uh, uh, tough thing. And we're, you know, when Phil comes back, we'll do a little Democrat-Republican on some of these races um, on, on that. Um, you know, the one thing as we close up, I think that, uh, and of course you have the New Jersey governor race. Uh, that is a marquee race uh, that... You know, it does look like after uh, eight years of Chris Christie that you're, that the lean is towards a Democrat. New Jersey has been a Democratic state, but you never know. You never know. Kim Gudano uh, is, uh, seems to be working hard in order to do that, and we will, see, we will see what happens in that race. I mean, you can't ever count, uh, count it out. Um, you know, a couple things. Mike Flynn back in the news again, and uh, just uh, shockingly so that uh, he was apparently on the take for another nuclear for a nuclear deal in the Middle East while he was national security advisor. Um, you know, this guy had conflicts like it just, well, it, it's it's rather shocking that uh, that that would happen. Let me put it that way. I mean, I, I don't even know what else to say that you could be sitting at that level and, and be doing uh, that. Um, Sebastian Gorka had some choice words for the Jewish uh, establishment. Uh, basically calling anybody, I mean, essentially anybody who wasn't who was Jewish and wasn't supporting the president of being anti-Israel. I mean, I you know, I, I don't dispute the fact that Sebastian Gorka uh, is a friend of Israel. Um, in everything, I mean, this is, quote, everything I have done, I've been a great friend of Israel. I've spoken honestly about the friend of jihadism in the United States. I agree with that. Some great Americans came to my defense, talked about Mort Klein. But then he said, which is really, uh, you know, one of the saddest phenomenon of American politics is ha- now that liberal, that the liberal, the liberal elements of the American Jewish population has basically become anti-Israel. It's the greatest Saradist paradox. You know, such are key people as the forward, who are pro-BDS, who are pro-Iran deal. It's a very tragic phenomenon that one should be supporting Israel and U.S. relations when they've done so much, done so much to betray our great friendship, Jerusalem. Um, not really the case. I mean, I don't think that that, uh, you can't accuse the forward of being pro-BDS. They aren't. Uh, you can't go ahead and they aren't pro the Iran deal either. Uh, I'm not, don't agree with the forward in almost anything. Um, I think they're hopelessly anti-Orthodox in their reporting, uh, unabashedly so, um, very anti-conservative. I think they definitely had a campaign against Gorka, but that's not really why Gorka was fired. I mean, at least the left, it seems that Gorka was fired because he was a national security official who didn't have a security clearance. And... You know, we have to acknowledge that he really didn't have a job. He wasn't actually doing anything. At least that's, and to me, that that's the case. I mean, you know, you can't be in that situation. Now, he is going to speak at the ZOA dinner, and we'll leave that, you know, aside. Um, you know, two more things that particularly, uh, Yoni uh, Netanyahu, not Yoni Netanyahu, Yair Netanyahu, just, uh, I, I, you see this also. This is Gorka-esque, right? Okay, so people who oppose you, they're, they're anti-Israel, anti-Semites, but he is retweeting anti-Semitic memes out there against against Ehud Barak and say that George Soros is the puppet master, the Jewish conspiracy puppet master. I, I got to tell you, that's that's pretty sickening. And when David Duke is retweeting your tweets, you have to kind of rethink about what you're doing. And this is the son of the prime minister of the state of Israel. And uh, last thing, spin of the week, uh, Sean Spicer goes on Jimmy Kimmel and basically says that the Trump's inaugural crowd was still the largest 
ever. That's it for this week here on the Knock'em Siegel Network. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Josephs.